So I'm going to read all the way through. It's kind of long, um, but if you can just uh, try not to hear me and try to imagine being there, Jesus is actually giving this last speech to really just his disciples, which is probably like the 12 apostles and maybe a couple other people, uh, a few other men and, and women who would have been there with him. Uh, and he's sitting on a mount, uh, what they would call a mountain, we would call it like a little hill, but uh, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and uh, he sits down or he stands up and gives this kind of little speech. So I'll read all the way through 25, which has a whole bunch of verses. And then there's three main stories and we'll talk through each of those, um, but how they relate and those things. 25, verse 1. That's awesome. That says Matthew 26, right? All right, so it's not going to be on the screen, and uh, we're going to read along, and you're just going to listen. (laughs) So normally my wife does that, and it's probably my mistake in telling her. She's on an airplane right now and uh, going away on vacation somewhere warm. It was too cold this morning, so she left, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's not true, but she did. Well, it is true, but that's not the reason. All right. <laughs> so let me just read this to you, and I'll try to survive, and you try to survive, and we'll get through this. Then the kingdom, this is Jesus speaking, then the kingdom of heaven will be like uh, ten virgins, uh, which would be their way of describing young women, uh, ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps... They took no no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our, our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves." And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Second story. Jesus said, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, oh, sorry, <laughs> to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents, and this is a unit of money, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also... He who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much." Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, he, who ha- he also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, 
I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. Just as a side note, if you've ever supervised anyone in a job, and it goes good, it goes good, and then someone has a long speech, you know this is going to be a problem, right? <laughs> or if you have, like, children, and you behaved, you behaved, and you have a speech about something. All right, I know which one didn't. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the, man, but the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not, you, and this is sarcasm, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received which was my, what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Third story. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus ends this group of teaching on the end times uh, with these three stories. And last week in chapter uh, 24, he talks about um, how, how the end will come and kind of a, what we would call a rapture kind of experience. If, and there's biblical scholars that believe in rapture and those who don't in this kind of it's apocalyptic writing, so it's hard to know what's literal and what's metaphorical and those kinds of things. Uh, but this kind of experience at the end of the world that will be a surprise. And so Jesus begins the stories, these three kind of chunks of teaching towards the end of this, with these, this story of the ten virgins. And in their culture, um, like we would, we have the word virgin as a technical word for us. For them, virgin meant young woman because extramarital sex was punishable by throwing rocks at them till they were dead. 
Uh, so it's a different time, um, but a different culture. And so when you would have a young woman, it was just like a known or an assumed thing that that, uh, that was her status, or what we would call her technically her uh, status. And so these young women who would be like marriages were different, but they'd be somewhat similar to a bridesmaid, and they were supposed to wait. And marriages in their days usually involved two parades, which if you're getting married soon, this is a way better idea, all right? They don't sit down. Everyone's bored and having a small talk with people they don't really like. And instead, they do parades, which is way better. So there's a parade that goes from, like, the groom's house, which would sometimes be his parents' house, depending on how old he was. And the parade would go over to the bride's house, like you're going to get the bride, right? Like, this is a good idea. You set up a parade. If they live far away, you do, like, a caravan or rent one of those party buses, right? And you would go to the place, like you're going, and everyone would go with, the, like they'd have the groomsmen would drive, or maybe ride a, a horse or something like that. And, but you usually didn't marry people that live far away either, because you didn't travel. Like there was no such thing as like vacation in this day, or, or going somewhere to learn or find yourself or something. So you probably married uh, like your second or third cousin, but whatever. Um, I'm not judging them. I'm just, the pool was shallow. And so, so you, you would go across your, your village. Maybe if you had really kind of weird standards, you would go to the next village down the road. But all the villages were walking distance and those kinds of things. So you would go and, and uh, often these things would happen at night. And so the parade would go down and they'd have torches and those kinds of things. And they'd probably be singing and there'd be a lot of happiness and those things. And so these 10 bridesmaids were waiting and supposed to be there for the bride and they get down there and the groom shows up when some of them are gone to buy more oil for their lamps. And there's this moment when the groom shows up and they leave and take the parade. Okay, now the parade. Will you have a little kind of maybe a ceremony at the bride's house and then parade back to the groom's house where there'd be the big party, right? So it's kind of like, Parade with the single guy and then parade with the married couple, which was kind of a cool little deal, a fun thing you could do if you're getting married this summer. So um, I'm just saying, uh, if, I'm do, if you want me to do a wedding and you say there's going to be a parade, the answer is yes, all right? So <laughs> that would be so awesome. But anyways, uh, but so you would do this. And so the uh, 10 young virgins show up and the wise ones who are prepared and watching and know that the the groom is coming soon uh, are ready and have extra oil which would be a common thing this is how people uh, lit the way in those days but some of them were like didn't bring extra didn't have enough and had to leave and go do something left and stopped watching to see when the groom came and ended up missing it end up outside of the party knocking on the door and that moment is kind of just as a side note it's kind of a weird moment because the metaphor is that some are in with the kingdom of God, right? And some are outside. And there's always that weird question of, if there's no sadness in heaven, won't we notice the people who aren't there? Like, there are people who I love dearly who have no interest in Jesus or heaven or belief in an afterlife like I believe. And will I not experience that? And, and it's kind of a weird tension that we experience but I would bet you very rarely were, are at a wedding where you think, you know what's sad? All the people who aren't here. You know, like it's just, uh, I think you, there's going to be an overwhelmedness of, if that's a word, of being in the presence of God or being in the presence of 
this marriage feast, which the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. And at the end of everything, heaven is described, at least the beginning of heaven, as this huge wedding feast, right? Uh, which we would associate with sitting down, and then afterwards there'll be a DJ and we dance, and we're kind of embarrassed because the charismatics are doing the YMCA, you know? But, <laughs> the, but there is, in, in their culture, this would be much more like parades, and it just creates a different vision of what heaven is. If you thought heaven was a lot of sitting around and doing nothing, apparently it's a lot of moving around with like noise and instruments and throwing candy. So, um, but it just creates a little more fun for heaven. But some are apparently left on the outside, and they're left on the outside because they weren't watching. And so there's this watching that is apparently supposed to happen, like an awareness or um, uh, like, and it doesn't take it to the point of, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. You need to be aware that the return of Christ in the theological word is imminent, which means it could happen, and we joked about this last week, it could happen at any moment. It probably won't happen in the next couple of moments. Because it's been 2,000 years of moments since Christ left and said, I'll be returning soon. And so it probably won't happen just from a gambling standpoint. If you're like betting on things, it probably won't happen today, right? And I say that on purpose because I think it would be ironic if it did happen today. Uh, it'd be a good way to start your day every day. Jesus, I bet you don't come back today, right? And then when he does come back, be like, I knew it. And so you could be that guy in heaven if you want. But, but there, is this, um, there is this awareness that Jesus speaks of in this teaching that should be evident in the believers. Now, what happens is we get believers who are really good at this and they climb up on hills and expect Jesus to come back or they set up cameras. Uh, there are Christian TV stations who have set up webcams where you can log on to their site and look because they believe this mountain is where Jesus is going to come back. And so you can log on to your computer, put that in the corner, and when Jesus comes back, you'll see it on your computer as you're returning email, and you'll know, I don't have to return that email, right? Uh, but there'll be this kind of watchingness that goes beyond uh, what we would uh, actually call profitable, like Jesus isn't saying, so watch and only watch, and that's all you do, just watch. And in order to explain that, he tells the next story, where he gives three servants, or the master, and in these stories, so you know, often the king or the master is God or Jesus, gives the, his servants or his workers uh, five talents, two talents, and one talent. And uh, so you know, like five talents would be, in our money, like three-quarters of a million, uh, probably around that, between 500000 and a million dollars. And so he gives that to the first one, and then he gives maybe like two hundred k to the second one, and then he gives maybe like fifty or 75 to the third servant. And the first servant takes his million bucks and actually does something with it. He earns another million bucks so that when his boss comes back, he can be like, look, boss, I've done a good job. You entrusted me with this division of your work or of your empire, of your estate, and I did a good job. Like, I did the job that I'm supposed to do, and I made money. I used your money to make money. And the second guy, same kind of deal. I had two talents, now I have four. There you go. The third guy digs a hole and puts some money in it. 
which sounds funny, but that was like, there was no such thing as a safe. And having your homes broken into was actually epidemic at this time. Like, people didn't go on vacation because they didn't have, like, door locks and windows and dogs and those kinds of things, right? Or nobody had guns to protect themselves. So if you were stronger, you got to take things from the weaker. And so that's, which is why you lived in a village with strong people in it. And so uh, if you had something that was valuable, the best thing to do was to go out in the field and dig a hole and bury it and act like it wasn't there, which means you got to remember where you buried that thing, right? Uh, so, uh, which means, don't you want to go to Israel and dig some holes, right? Like just random, this is a field, like just a random field, and you're just out there shoveling, right? Like you could probably buy tourist trips where you just go dig ditches in fields. But anyways, uh, there's an idea. You can write that down. Um, but so this servant digs a hole, brings back, says, Master, I know. And he says these things, that you're a hard man, and you reap where you do not sow, and you gather where you have not scattered, meaning he basically takes from people who, like he takes from fields that aren't his. Like he's calling him basically like a thief or like a shady businessman. He's like, I know you're shady, and so I'm scared of you, and so I didn't want, like, it's kind of it treats him like a bookie or something, and so here's your money back. And the reaction of the servant, like he's, Instead of working, the third servant, instead of working, was just watching. Do you see that? He was setting up a webcam to see when Jesus came back, and he was just making sure that he didn't mess anything up so that when Jesus came back, he said, here, here's what you gave me. Here, you can have this thing back. Like, here you, get, here you go. And so they get this third servant, and the master just goes off, right? Calls him slothful and wicked and lazy, and it's just like, you are terrible. Then he takes the small, like one talent that he entrusted with, gives it to the guy who now has 10, and then takes that guy and throws him out into the darkness. The description is the same kind of words that are used to describe Hades or hell in their culture, uh, which could be the afterlife or could be this burning garbage dump that was outside of the city. That was kind of their image of what hell was like. Uh, and so they throw him out there. You're not just fired. You're like thrown out of my operation, of my business here. And then Jesus actually says, to him who has much, more will be given. And to him who has none, even what he does have will be taken away. It's this weird moment because in these two stories, that nice Jesus that's carrying the sheep around and healing people and feeding people, we're kind of like, where's that guy, right? Like, where's, where's Mr. Merciful Jesus? You know, like, I, I want that other buddy Jesus back. Not the Jesus that throws the guy out. Or not the Jesus in the, who tells this story in a way that if you don't utilize what I give you, I will take what I have given you and give it to someone else. Like, all of a sudden, we're like, oh, no, like, has God given me anything? Right? <laughs> and then we're like, oh, no, I have talents. Crap. <laughs> right? And we're like, there's an expectation that I use the gifts that God has given me to do something? Because some of us, we want to have a Christianity that looks like, okay, I've got my ticket. Don't screw up and you get in. Right? Like, don't actually do anything with your Christianity. Don't influence others. Don't share the gospel. Just don't mess up 
Just don't lose this, and then you'll get in at the end. And apparently, Jesus isn't really down with that strategy. And it's not like he's really um, concerned with the return on your investment. Like, Jesus doesn't say, okay, you got back 100%, you got back 100%, or like those kinds of things. He's interested in utilization. And he's well aware that some people are very highly gifted, and some people have less. Some people have five talents, like three-quarters of a million dollars worth of gifts or talents or gifts or abilities that God may have given them, and some people have a little bit less. And probably, God wants to give more, if you read the way the story works, but some of us handle this much, and we handle this much really well. I kind of call this like the Lane Kiffin rule, if you're into college football. Lane Kiffin is, um, well, I'm going to say a fantastic head coach because it is so funny to watch, uh, right? Like Lane Kiffin, uh, he coached some teams that were interesting to watch at the time. Now, he's not coaching the head coaching anymore. He's offensive coordinator, and he's turned, I think, at Alabama, right? And he has turned the Alabama offense into something that we can actually stand to watch. But he probably shouldn't become a head coach, because he has this gift and he has this talent and he works in this way and that's what he does. And he'll do it very, 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 very well. So it's not like God is expecting you to become as good as somebody else. When God has given you gifts, though, he's expected you to use them, not to hold on to them so you don't mess up. Here's what this looks like. Like, uh, let's say you go up to the night strike thing, right? And, and you're walking around. One of the things they do is walk around Portland, like praying for it or praying for the people or praying for the city and uh, praying for the people who are serving others, maybe handing stuff out. And you hand uh, somebody a fresh pair of socks and they say, why are you giving this to me? You say, because I love Jesus. And they say, I want to be a Christian. Tell me how to become a Christian. And you give the worst gospel presentation in the history of humanity, all right? Like, you, your explanation of Jesus' death and resurrection sounds um, like a horrid. Like, you're, like, explaining, and you're like, I'm not sure I want to follow Jesus anymore from my own explanation. All right? You're not evaluated on that. You're not evaluated by God. God's not sitting in heaven going, oh, that's a nearly meets, all right? <laughs> He's not. <laughs> so, but God isn't sitting there wondering if you've met his standard. What he's done is, because if you can't share the gospel in an intelligible way, there may be, an, so you know, everyone has the ability and the expectation, like sharing the gospel is part of being a Christian. But some people are awesome at it. You know what I mean? Like some people tell someone else about Jesus. Like I have friends who basically every other week are leading someone to Jesus. Like, hey, this is my new friend. He became a Christian last week when I told him about Jesus. And I'm like, I'm like, so how did that happen, right? 
Because I've had people, well, when I was a young youth pastor, I had a man come in, and I think all the other pastors were on vacation or something, and this man comes in, and he has a problem, and he's telling me, and I'm like 26, I'm like, I don't know what to do with your problem, right? And he basically led himself to Jesus in my office, all right? <laughs> it was one of the funniest experiences of my life, and yeah, I never saw him again, never saw him before. He comes in, I don't know, he just wandered into a church building, and, and unfortunately, he ended up with me, and he had to lead himself to the Lord. And he leaves, I pray with him, a very confused prayer. He leaves, I go back to the secretaries. I'm like, I think someone just became a Christian in my office, but you'd have to ask them because I was there, but a not helpful way. Uh, it doesn't mean, because I'm apparently terrible at explaining the gospel to someone, it doesn't mean that, oh, therefore I don't, I don't have to do that, right? Or if I'm a terrible singer, so therefore I don't need to worship the Lord in song. No, let, that's not the way that this, the gifts work. But there's some people who have this amazing gift, and sometimes we'll start to feel guilty, like I should be better at this. And the way that really we, I believe we look at this is there's some who have five, there's some who have two, there's some who have one. And you might just have one. Like, and if you hear me sing, it's like maybe half a one, right? Like it's... Like, I need to sit near the front so the speakers overwhelm what's coming out of my mouth. And, and there's just this, but that doesn't mean that God's going to say, well, you were kind of good, but not good enough. God's going to say, I gave you this much, and you turned that into this much, and so, that's, so I'm going to give you some more. Like, you have done well with a little, and so I'm going to give you a lot. Which brings us into a whole other part of this. When he speaks to the servant who has five, <laughs> this is awesome. He speaks to the servant who has five. Uh, I'm in the wrong chapter. And he says, um, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Do you remember how much five talents is? It's like a million. So you've been faithful over this little bit that I've given you. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious because when we look at someone who is just insanely gifted, right? Like someone who, every time they open their mouth, if they're gifted in evangelism, every time they open their mouth, someone's becoming a Christian, right? Like they go change their oil, the whole garage is following Jesus, and they're going to be in church next week, right? When we look at that, we're like, oh, right? Like that's so awesome. And Jesus looks at that and goes, well, I gave you something small, and you did all right with that little gift I gave you. Now let's move on to something. Like, now I want to give you more. Because we can get into our minds that Jesus has gifted us, and we're pretty awesome. Like, Jesus has gifted some of us with basically the gift of awesomeness. And we start to think, you know, I'm pretty sure that God, when he was handing out gifts, like, he, like, poured a little more into my mold, right? And so there wasn't enough left over for everyone else, and I'm pretty awesome that ignores the infinite nature of God and the infinite power of God. If God so desired, he could easily share the gospel with every human on earth in a way that is irresistible, and they would instantly respond and turn to him, if he felt like it, since he's by nature and definition God. And so if we fall into the trap of thinking, either way, someone else has more gifts than me, I I don't, or more talents, or more abilities, or more 
natural uh, just resources or gifting that God has given them. And so they should be awesome and I shouldn't. Or if we go the other way and say, look at how awesome I am compared to the people around me, I must be pretty awesome and carry this great responsibility. In all of that, we're missing the point because we're focused on the amount. And what Jesus, in the story, what the master is actually caring about is the utilization of the gifts that you're given. You might be, like seriously, you might be the worst Christian in this room, right? And we won't ask you to raise your hand or anything, but there is, like, and not just like in a funny way, but like maybe you suck at, like you're bad at this, right? Like you are struggling to figure this out. And when Jesus looks at that, he says, I've given you this much, and let's see how that goes. And when you are just show how faithful you are with that little bit, then Jesus wants to open that up and open that up and open that up. If you say, well, I'm terrible at this, so I'm just going to not open up. I'm just not going to let anybody know. Maybe I'll just kind of sit in, you know, and kind of slide in, slide out and not get into any relationships or not develop or whatever or not read my Bible. Then what you're saying is I'm going to take this thing that God has given me and I'm going to bury it. I'm going to put it in a hole so that when Jesus comes back, I know at least I'm in. I know at least I haven't like lost what he's given me. Then you're looking at this from an amount standpoint, a volume standpoint, instead of a utilization standpoint. Because when Jesus looks at you, worst Christian in the room, he is amazed at the return on your investment when you utilize the gifting that he's given you. And when the best Christian in the room, and we're not going to let you raise your hand either. <laughs> Maybe we should, because then we'd actually identify the reverse, right? But anyways, if you really honestly believe that you're the best Christian in the room, like you've read through the Bible in the original language, right? You don't know the original languages, because then be a nerd, but you've read it. And the Spirit speaks to you, right? But you might be the best Christian in the room. And when God looks at you, he sees a little bit, a little, like he sees this. And he says, so what have you done with what I've given you? Because he's not looking for volume. He's looking for utilization. And then, if you're well utilized, did you see what happened? The servants, he said the same thing. He says, enter into, he's like, here, I take that. And you've been faithful over a little. I'm going to give you more. And then he actually says this, enter into the joy of your master. Because the utilization isn't about impressing God. Because if we remember that God is infinite, no matter how great you are or how you utilize your gifts or your resources or your relationships or your talents, no matter what, the infinite God will still see that as small. And so you will never be awesome enough where God goes, wow, you are strikingly awesome. Like, never. <laughs> and I am the kind of person who thinks I'm pretty awesome, right? Like, I'm paying for that with my children. But there is, like, I'm pretty convinced that I'm awesome, right? Like, I'm Canadian, all right? <laughs> and I'm tall, right? And I'm moderately good at some sports. <laughs> I've, I'm pretty awesome at being me. 
And it is a complete trip to fall into thinking that God would ever be impressed with me. And so, you know, like, I, I preach every Sunday, right? Like, I'm a pastor, you know, and when I get to heaven, I imagine there's like a first-class lounge <laughs> for the awesome people. <laughs> and I mean, I'll tell you about it. Maybe I'll sneak you some snacks or something, but... <laughs> when I think that way, and it's only funny because it's so embarrassing because on Monday mornings, sometimes I need those thoughts to, to survive Monday, but, <laughs> but there is this kind of like thinking that God would be impressed with us. And even beyond like me being the pastor, we're the grove, right? And we're kind of awesome. And I don't mean to say that the other churches aren't awesome. They're just not as awesome as us, right? <laughs> and when we begin to think that, like, no, let's say when we begin to actually believe that, then we start to move into a place that God will be impressed with us. Like when we get to heaven, there's a special section for the grove. And it's just upstairs. And you can probably hear the laughter if you're stuck downstairs with the non-awesome churches. Maybe hear a bit of the music because it's so dang loud. But there is this kind of thing that can creep in that God will be impressed with us. And the problem isn't our belief about us. Our problem is our belief about God. That God would ever be impressed or disappointed in you isn't reflective on your awesomeness or your abilities or your talent or your giftedness. It is all on your utilization. And so when God looks at us and says, yes, as a church, you're pretty awesome, what he's going to say is, so what did you do? Like, did you get 300 people in a room every week and stare forward? Like, oh, good job. Right? Like, that is not impressive at all. All right? Like, it is not. We should not be patting ourselves on the back because we set up chairs every single week, a small percentage of us, but a larger percent put them away, right? <laughs> when God looks at us, he doesn't think, oh, you're so awesome. He thinks, look at what I've given you. And if you look at our church, we're not a one-talent church. We are much closer to a five-talent church. The resources and the abilities and the giftedness that God has given us, which means the expectations of our utilization is much higher. It is not acceptable for us as a church to take our talents and bury them and save them for ourselves and hold on to who we are so that we make it to the end and to, can report to God how awesome we are. Because if we are existing in a world and in a community, like the documentary said, uh, the Pacific Northwest generally is accepted as the least churched place in America. The percentage of people who choose none on their religion in the Pacific Northwest is twice the average of the rest of the country. It's, uh, there's like normal secular sociologists who write books. They're at the library. It's called The Nun Zone. You can read it. It's really, really interesting. Because we exist in a place that has very little understanding or knowledge of Jesus, which means we can explain it to them in a way that actually makes sense. <laughs> like we can serve them in a way that Jesus would serve them instead of preaching at them in the way that Jesus probably wouldn't preach at them. Utilization 
should be your key measurement of your faith. And um, here's what that looks like, all right? There are places in the world where, like, uh, the Scripture is illegal, like Bibles, right? Non-government printed Bibles. There's governments that print Bibles that are adjusted so that the people um, have a little bit of an adjusted Christianity. To smuggle Bibles into those places is illegal and kind of fun. And so I've never got to do that, but I got to help friends do that. And when you bring the Scripture to places, there are places where they'll have like a page or two of the Scripture, and every Christian there has it memorized, right? Like they know this stuff because, and they're utilizing it in their life, and they're living by this stuff. I, on my phone right here, have 200 Bibles, and so do you. I have a phone that will read me the stinking Bible because I'm so lazy I won't read it. And that's not true. I don't, I, but, you know, I'm not saying you're lazy. Maybe you're just bad at reading. I have, uh, like, I have a bookshelf in my home. I have an entire shelf of Bibles. Like this, like I have this many Bibles, right, for all these different things and the man Bible and the army Bible and the annotated Jewish New Testament and the blah, 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 blah. I collect Bibles in other languages. I have a Samoan Bible. I have a Bible from the Philippines. I have like a Russian Bible. Like I, I think it's hilarious, right? If I don't know my scripture, where's my utilization at? Do you see that? And so when you go to heaven and you meet some little villager from a country where the scripture is illegal and they've memorized Philippians 2 and 3 and they've lived it the best they can and you say, Philippians, is that Old or New Testament? You won't be going to the first class lounge, all right? Does that make sense? Your utilization is a complete failure. This doesn't mean that I think there's some kind of legalism involved where if you're not good enough or not whatever, what I'm saying is if you think living as a free Christian in this country with the resources that we have, that we're a one-talent people, you're completely misreading the world and this story. The resources and the abilities and the talents and the giftedness and the resources that you have, I said resources twice accidentally, what you have is a five-talent level, which doesn't mean there's a great pressure on you. It means there's a great opportunity for you to create and contribute and adjust and move things forward. Last part of the story, the part you all came for, the big fire. All right. At the very end, Jesus actually throws out, at the, from verse 31 on, Jesus throws out this judgment where he separates the sheep from the goats. And then he says, sheep, you're going into heaven. Goats, you're going into the fire. The fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. All right. And that teaches us a little bit about hell there. We're going to talk about heaven and hell in the afterlife this summer, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. You can come back this summer because there's no AC in here, so it'll be a good time to talk about hell. But <laughs> when we, when we, uh, this, the goats are removed, the sheep are brought into eternal life, brought into what we would call the joy of our master, right? This um, immense presence of God. The evaluative criteria on the separation is this. You was based on clothing, feeding, visiting. Did you see all those things? You saw me naked, you clothed me, I was in prison, you visited me, all those things. What that's referring to, a lot of times people will interpret the scripture, I think, wrongly. And they'll interpret it in thinking, you're evaluated on how you serve the poor people as a Christian. Because you're evaluated on how you serve the people who this, this, and this, and this, and this. And 
if we evaluate in that way, then we end up trying to do something that impresses God, right? Like I am, and we fall into the same trap that I was just talking about. I am going to find more hungry people and feed them. I'm going to find more lonely people and visit them. And I'm going to do these things because then I know I'm on the sheep side and I'm not on the goat side. And I want to be going where the sheep are going and not going where the goats are going. But when Jesus refers to this, he actually uses the sense, he uses the word for siblings in the Bible. And because we have Bibles interpreted by boys, it's brothers. But when, when we have, and all the men standing there would have been brothers, not siblings. But Jesus actually says, when you've done one of, to the least of these brothers of mine. And when he's talking there with these disciples, he's referring to them as, in this situation, as his family. And really the response that people have towards what we're going to, I'm going to use the word gospelers, like people who are bringing the gospel, what Jesus is doing is saying the response that you have towards missionaries, Christians, gospelers will determine your eternal destiny because your response towards the people who tell you about Jesus will determine whether you end up on the sheep side or end up on the goat side because these people are bringing the gospel and bringing the story of Jesus. So this isn't, and there are smart people who would disagree with me, but I don't think this is referring to a way of Christians, like, and, and I'm not saying Christians shouldn't serve the poor. I'm saying this scripture is a weak proof of that because this is actually, if we're talking about eternal destiny and if we're actually looking at the words that Jesus used, this is describing how you respond to the people who tell you about Christ. Now, as Christians, I just finished saying that we all have the responsibility. Like, we don't see missionaries as just the people who go to Ukraine or Bolivia or Belize, but you're a missionary to your family, your community, your school, your work, those kinds of things. I honestly believe that you have an assigned responsibility from God in the circle of influence that you've been given. And maybe you've been given five talents in that, maybe you've been given one, but you have an assigned responsibility. You are put into the places and the relationships that you are because God has dreams of using you in those relationships. Now, if you find yourself in this story then, you are the person who is bringing the gospel because if you're a follower of Jesus, somebody already has brought the gospel to you and so you are the person who is naked and needs to be clothed, who is hungry and needs to be fed, who is lonely and needs to be visited, who is in prison and needs to be visited. That's where you find yourself in the story. And one of the remarkable things is in the New Testament, further on, the Apostle Paul, who becomes the primary and greatest missionary in the very early church, gives a list that's almost the same. I've been without a home. I've been in prison. I've been beaten. I've been alone, I've feared for my life, I've been hungry, I've been thirsty. And he describes the experience of a gospeler. He describes the experience of a person who shares their faith. Now, he was doing that in a context that's radically different than our context. You probably won't go to prison for sharing your faith. You probably won't lose all your clothing for sharing your faith. But there are contexts today in our world where that is the case. Where following Jesus means being kicked out of your family. Uh, countries 
that are governed by Sharia law, and I don't mean this to be a political statement, this is a religious statement to me, if you follow Jesus in a Muslim extremist kind of community, then the result of that is at least exile and at most death because that is the experience of what it is to follow Jesus, which means it's dangerous for us to think that it's normal for us to have this experience of following Jesus. Like our experience of following Jesus is the abnormality. Freedom is the abnormality. If you look at something in a historical sense, I'm not saying it's good or bad, I'm saying our experience, because I personally think it's good because I'm alive and I appreciate that, but when we, uh, a lot, <laughs> and so, but when we look at our experience and start to think that this is the normal experience for everyone who follows Jesus, we actually miss what Jesus is actually saying in the scripture. We turn it into something where we're the servants, we're serving the poor, instead of we're abandoning everything in order to move into this. This means, at the very least, having the willingness to take everything that God has given you and give it away with no regard for your own personal well-being because you have that level of faith in Jesus. And people will say to you, but that's reckless. And I will say, yep. And I'm not saying that tomorrow you should give everything, like we're not doing an offering at the end of the service, right? <laughs> we should. But anyways, if I was good at manipulating, we totally would have done that. But, but there is this kind of thinking of um, there's a tension that we have to manage between responsible stewardship, like if you gave everything away tomorrow and then had nothing to feed your family, the scripture says you're actually ashamed to the gospel, all right? Like the Bible teaches that. If you, um, like have, if you just give everything away, quit your job, move out of your house, move your family into the ditch in front of your house, um, this church will biblically say, we're kind of ashamed of your nuttiness. Uh, we love you, but you're crazy, all right? Because biblically, that's what you are. Now, so we have this tension, though, between stewardship and responsibility and a reckless abandonment that is faith in Jesus. What we see as resources and talent and being a five church and maybe a ten church is we tend to become more conservative. The studies, like research, actually shows this. As if you've been following Jesus 40 or 50 years, then you've reached an age where you tend to behave in a more conservative manner, which actually should be the opposite because Jesus has been faithful to you for 40 or 50 years. When a teenager steps out and follows Jesus and does something brave, that's the outlier. That's weird because they don't have the experience with God where God has proved himself over and over and over and over again. If you follow Jesus faithfully for years, like this church now is in its sixth year, we should be taking larger risks than when we started. When we started this church, if it bombed and nothing happened, who cares? If we bomb out now, that is a huge risk, and people will talk about us like we're idiots, right? But maybe we are. <laughs> I got some amen, some what, <laughs> right? But maybe, like the Scripture teaches, the way of Jesus is seen by the world as a way that is foolish. And maybe God will call you to do things 
that people that you respect will say, I think that's a little nutty. Maybe he will call you to get in a van and go up to Portland and treat some stoned guy who's homeless because he's an addict with respect and dignity, and your friends will say, why would you bother doing that? He doesn't deserve that. And you say, I know. I know he doesn't deserve it, and I know what I don't deserve, and that's why I do it. Maybe God calls you to get on an airplane and go to Belize and serve some kid in some orphanage, and your friends say, wouldn't it be more cost-efficient if you did blah, 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 and you say, I know. This is stupid, but this is what I think God's telling me to do. Jesus left heaven to come down here so I can leave Oregon and to go to somewhere else because everywhere on earth isn't as awesome as here. There are things that God will call you to do that might not make the most sense in the world. Like, they, like you might tell me about them and I'll say, I'm not sure that makes sense. And if God's calling you to it, you need to pursue it. So we're watching but we're not putting our talent in a hole. We're actually going and engaging with the Christians of the world in the bringing about of the return of Christ because Jesus' presence will be among them because we are among them. Let me pray for us in that way.